is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weisman. Today we spend the hour with the historian Lily Geismer, whose new book, Left Behind, recounts the 40-year history of the Democratic Party's shift from the politics of the New Deal and Great Society to that of the Clinton-era New Democrats of the Democratic Leadership Council, or DLC. The New Democrats believed that market-based solutions would address economic disparities and racial inequality But Lily Geismer's study shows in area after area, from housing to education to welfare reform and microfinance, that profits were made, but people were left behind with a weakened social safety net. Rather than doing well by doing good, this new ideology got new Democrats elected, but led to one disaster after another. Left Behind brings back the soaring rhetoric to sell the ideas, but shows that the Clinton administration's record was even more catastrophic than we remember. And as one reviewer put it, instead of helping people, they put the entire globe at their mercy. We talk to Lily Geismer when our program returns in just a moment. This is Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Very pleased today to welcome Lily Geismer on the show for the very first time. She has a new book called Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. It just came out in March by Public Affairs Press, and it explores the Democratic Party's promotion of market-based solutions to social problems. She takes us on a tour It's in a very readable way, though, through what will be for many a trip down memory lane, and it isn't pretty. We get the origin and development of the Democratic Leadership Council, or the DLC, the many ways Bill Clinton came to personify it, and how their politics changed the Democratic Party, running away from the politics of the New Deal and Great Society to embrace essentially Republican ideas dressed up with the language of empowerment. No wonder Clinton was so hated by the Republicans who saw him stealing their program. Geismer takes us through the various applications of this new ideological framing, defining the new Democrats, as she says it, by doing well, by doing good. In the areas of community development banking, which I often encountered as uh, poverty pimping, um, housing, market-based health care reform, charter schools, empowerment zones, micro-enterprise, free trade, and she shows the disasters left behind. It's a great read. One reviewer said almost a beach read. And it's more than just an indictment of the Clintons and the DLC. It's also interesting to see the way figures like Jesse Jackson, Al Gore, Robert Reich, Barack Obama, and Joseph Biden develop in this narrative with great import for today as we head to the midterms and the DLC is busy blaming the left for the Democrats' poor showing to come. 
We're very fortunate to have Lily Geismer with us to make the connections. And later on, we're going to ask for your support and give away some of her book as a thank you gift. Lily is an associate professor of history at Claremont McKenna. She researches and teaches about recent political and urban history in the U.S. with a focus on liberalism and the Democratic Party. She's the author of Left Behind, this new book that we're going to look at today. And her previous book is called Don't Blame Us, The Suburban Liberals and the Transformation of the Democratic Party. She's also written widely. I just read last night an article on Atari Democrats and Jacobin. You can also see her work in the Washington Post, New York Times. And as she will say, she's been on a lot of interviews and podcasts. So Lily, welcome to Jacobin Radio. We are very lucky to have you. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really excited to be here. Me too. So I guess, you know, the first question really is about the reason for being for this book was what's its basic point and what were you trying to accomplish in writing it? And I know that's a giant question, but. No, it's, I mean, I had several different reasons. I mean, some of it was came from this longstanding interest I've had in sort of thinking about the, the liberals and, and the Democratic Party and what's happened, especially sort of since the 1960s. And I think so often the story of really American politics since the 1970s has been told largely as a story about the Republican Party and the rise of the right through Reagan and then the Bush years and then more recently with Trump. And often in that narrative, the Democratic Party and um, liberalism comes across as kind of weak and defensive, doing things only in reaction to the Republicans. So it leaves kind of the Republican Party as the more sort of hegemonic party in the U.S., And I wanted to kind of complicate that story and understand what the Democratic Party and liberalism actually looks like during this period. It's not a period as weak as it might often be perceived. And also think about, especially in this kind of turn towards more market-oriented solutions, that traditionally has been sort of told as another part of this idea that like the reason that the New Democrats and Bill Clinton took on this kind of more market-based thinking and promotion of economic growth was largely also in reaction to the Republicans, that it was kind of this was a way to win. And I wanted to understand and complicate that. And what I try to show in the book is that this wasn't just defensive, that they sort of fundamentally believed in this approach, not just to win elections, but that they actually believed in this as a means to address issues of poverty and inequality. So those were my kind of main purposes and goals in the book. So, and in some ways, I think you can both sort of in this effort to take seriously what the New Democrats and Bill Clinton were trying to say. Some might argue that you actually get like a a more devastating account of both their goals and then also the impact. Yeah, and I think that's right. I mean, so many people saw Clinton as the expert of triage. And of course, one thing that comes through very clearly in your book, Lily, is that it wasn't just that they were dressing up Republican policies, but that they really believed in this. They were true believers. (laughs) Yeah. And I think there's a question with that about the intent. I mean, I wanted to understand that intent. So this sort of fundamental faith in the ideas of the market to do good, that that really has come. I mean, and I think another actually motivation for writing the book is it was in many ways, I think when you write books, you're sort of shaped, and this is odd for historians, but we are shaped by like the moment in which we're living. And I was started this book in 2014, which was the kind of crest of the Obama years. And I think I was especially struck by my students and how much they saw the private sector as a space that you do good in, that if you kind of want to help people, you turn to the private sector, not the public sector. And they were students who were Democrats. And so I was thinking about where that faith comes from. And I think it actually lies a lot in the kind of Democratic Party of the 1990s. The other question I wanted to kind of think about is what were the impacts in terms of 
this faith in the market in terms of what it did to the larger social welfare state in the United States and especially the social safety net. So those are the other kinds of things of trying to understand those particular processes. It's really interesting. And I just want to make a comment on that before going into the next one. And that is that, you know, I too was teaching through this whole period, even in the Clinton administration. And it was interesting to see where students went. And so, you know, there was this period where there was, you know, they wanted to go into tech. But then very quickly in the, let's call it the 2000s, um, all the best students were going to do MBAs and go into finance. <laughs> and they weren't Republicans. And so I think you even mentioned that in your book. And I think it's really interesting because that's no longer the case. Yeah, it is fascinating. Or if they're doing it, they're doing it for different reasons. This is a slight side note, but I have lots of students who still are sort of going on that path, but it's more to pay off their student loans. I mean, so there's an idea. Exactly. That not, it's to get rid of loans. They're more transparent, I think, in the reasons they're doing it. So it's not like this is the means through which I'm going to like help poor people. And that has dissipated, even if there are a lot of students are still going to work in finance for various different reasons. Early in the book, in the introduction, Doing Well by Doing Good, and the book is called Left Behind. Its subtitle is The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality by Lily Geismer, and it is a public affairs publication. I think that's the name of it. In any case, on page 10, and I know this is not so relevant to the audience that doesn't have it, but there's a really interesting quote, and it's about the valorization of poor women of color as hardworking entrepreneurs and savers. Seemed, and they're saying that it seemed more compassionate than the infamous Reagan era image of the welfare queen, but it proved no less detrimental. The focus on transforming poor people of color into financial actors contributed to making what was left of the social safety net in the 1990s and beyond only available to those people willing or able to operate within the imperatives and strictures of market capitalism. And I think this really needs unpacking to explain just what you meant. In other words, why the new democratic formulation about poor and women, even in empowering women, is just about as bad as what the Republicans were saying. Yeah, I mean, I think this is this question of what is the similarities and differences between the two parties and how they sort of come to think about these kinds of questions. And I look in the book extensively at both Clintons, actually, and the larger New Democrats embrace of especially micro enterprise programs, which are, for those of you who aren't totally familiar with it, is the idea of giving small loans primarily to poor women so that they can start their own businesses. And it's an idea that in many ways, this is something that goes back centuries. I mean, so there's a lot of parts of micro enterprise itself that are not new. But it was particularly promoted and adopted in Bangladesh in the 1970s and then in the 1980s and 1990s by Muhammad Yunus at Grameen Bank. And Bill Clinton brings Muhammad Yunus to Arkansas in the 1980s when he's still governor to start a microenterprise program there. And it really fits in with the kind of larger New Democrat agenda. And I think that this goes to the quote of this, this kind of new type of separating the line between good poor person and bad poor person, which sort of goes to this welfare queen model. And the idea in the way that Clinton adopted it in Arkansas and then promotes it as part of his campaign for president in 1982, and then there's attempts to kind of bring it into welfare reform, which I can get to. The idea of it was that this could replace welfare so that you'd start your own business. And then there's a kind of consistent celebration of women who do this kind of work. And the way it was sold is like, be your own boss. I have one of the chapter titles. And so that will give you freedom. The other side of it is this idea of like, you can turn your hobby into a business. So I always use the example. It's like, you like to make coffee cake. You can foray that into starting your own business. And 
the reality is that what that does is elides the sort of severe difficulties of that happening. And I can use Arkansas as an example of this because I look at it in depth in the book and understand the dynamics. So the idea was bringing this into the Arkansas Delta, which is already like one of the most impoverished parts of the country. But the other side of it was in the communities in which these programs were implemented were communities that had once been sort of factory towns that they had had one largely sewing factories that had come in the 1960s, 1970s. Those factories had moved away by the time these programs had largely to Asia. So they'd lost their sort of main source of business. And the reality is there's this idea that kind of Americans are entrepreneurial and like all want to kind of work for themselves. But in reality, that's not the case. And like many people actually prefer the stability of not being their own boss, but actually like to have a stable job and like benefits and all the things that kind of come with that. So that's some of the problems with this approach. I think the other thing in the last part of the quote gets at this, is this idea of kind of it celebrates particular kinds of people. And so Clinton often talked about this, so the idea of like, working hard and playing by the rules. And so like that in this kind of the market capitalism, like the new economy, it sort of celebrates those who can do that, which is a very, very small amount of the population, but it then kind of stigmatizes those who don't. And so that goes to the kind of ways in which it works within, it's a reshaping of sometimes of the stigmatization of the welfare queen, but it actually has like many of the same consequences, if not the worst consequences, because the other side of it is ripping away and reshaping this, the larger social safety net. So that was a really long and convoluted answer to the question, but it's something I get really fired up about. So I can full more dig into it. But I, I, I clearly remember, you know, when Hillary Clinton went to South Asia with her daughter and they came back celebrating, you know, this idea of promoting women globally and lifting them out of poverty. And the role of these micro banks that would loan them the money, not very much, just a little bit of money, because women somehow were going to be more responsible than men in paying back the loans. And they would parlay it into, as you just said, a hobby into a business, or maybe it wasn't a hobby. But I think that you said in your chapter, I think it's in that uh, Be Your Own Boss, that when it was transplanted to Arkansas, there was one key difference. There was not the population density that existed in Bangladesh, and it wasn't possible for women to do that. Can you just explain that a little? Yeah. I mean, so there's a lot of questions. It's actually controversial. So one of the things, microfinance and microenterprise are like profoundly controversial. This is another thing, like it was such a hot topic in the like 2000s and then beyond, largely actually for the promotion of people like Hillary Clinton. And I can talk about that part of it. But the piece of it, it's like, it's controversial if it works in Bangladesh or not. There are lots of people who debate that. There's also other factors about if it works in Bangladesh, it's because of like the unique factors of the country and the particular constellation. And so one of the things about those of you who are not like familiar with Bangladesh, which I actually wasn't until I started working on this project, is that it's about the size of Florida, I think, but I mean, it's one of the most densely populated countries and it is rural, but it's rural and dense. And that is quite different than rural Arkansas. There's also just kind of other types of competition that comes up. And so you still have like national chains. So most people, even in a rural community in Bangladesh, like don't want to buy coffee. I mean, I'm keep going about the coffee cake one. They'd actually prefer to buy coffee cake at the grocery store than like from their neighbor. So it's like, there's other things that just don't make this kind of translate into that idea. And that's one thing I actually think it's fascinating because a lot of the figures that kind of populate like Eunice and like Clinton are like critical of modernization theory and the kind of modernization approach to international development. But there's actually a very similar element of it, which is like taking an idea that worked in one place and translating it to somewhere else where it doesn't. And I saw a lot of that. It also works with the community development banking idea. And so the book looks extensively at this program, this organization called Shore Bank, which was quite successful in what they were doing in the South Shore of Chicago, but Clinton came to kind of promote it as something that could solve like the problems of rural urban poverty across the United States. 
And the other piece of these types of programs, like be it community development banking or microenterprise, is that I call them in the book, they're micro solutions to macro problems. So they're very micro programs and these sort of small programs that are being sold as that they can solve the big major problems of large scale structural adjustment and the large scale, like just basically readjustment of the American economy. This can happen through these types of programs. And I think there's a piece of that that I would pin on one second. And one part is like, I don't necessarily think that these are terrible ideas in and of themselves. It's just that like they cannot replace the social safety net. So it's like, it's fine if you have a small microenterprise program, if you also have like a robust social welfare state, but like without that piece, they just cannot do what the Clinton and the New Democrats were promising that they could do. I want to go through a little bit more on this. Later in the interview, we'll go through some of the various ways that these policies were applied. But you write that Clinton, even more than Milton Friedman, sold the idea of the market as the solution. And I really remember this well, because you know, it's reflected in students, too, who'd say, why does the government take so long to build, say, a school or build this or that? The private sector could do it cheaper, faster, better, blah, blah, blah. And there was this entire mantra, and it, of course, carried over into the healthcare debate that, you know, the government couldn't do it, but the private sector, they could do it. So it really solidified this notion that private was better than public in popular consciousness. And I'm grateful that you wrote that. For those of us who lived through it, we remember it very well. And so I was wondering, though, in this idea, as you came to write about it, and you you say it's in doing well by doing good, is there anything in it besides cutting spending, cutting taxes, and deregulating business that makes it very different, let's say, from what the Republicans propose? Well, I think there are some pieces of it, and it's this idea that you can kind of, and this goes to the doing well by doing good piece of it, which is actually not a Milton Friedman idea. Like he didn't believe, I mean, he was much more transparent and like opposed to kind of the idea of social responsibility. Or He said, just make a profit. That's doing good. Yeah. And that's the idea. And I think the piece of it that's different here is that the democratic side of this is still that you can use the market to do things that once liberals saw as the responsibility of government. So it's actually kind of like, if you think about what the sort of classic New Deal programs and ideals are of government, that the private sector can still do those types of things as opposed to kind of government fully providing them, it comes through the private sector. So it's this idea of like sort of public-private partnership is another way to think about this. And I think the other piece of that that's different than the Republican or the Milton Friedman version is that idea is like government just is sort of out. Like you take government out of the equation and that goes to your students, your how your students would think about this as well. The democratic version is that there's still a place for government, but they often like they talk about, this is a lot from the kind of language of the new Democrats is like government is catalyst. So it's government's job or an investor. So government is doing the work of like initiating the process and then kind of steps back. And I think that that is a different way of thinking about those kinds of dynamics than the Republicans saw Their other idea, and this goes to like where the private sector, I mean, I think there are two parts of this idea of where the powers, the private sector. There was also this faith amongst in this larger population of Democrats who get called, first called Watergate babies, Atari Democrats, New Democrats, that you could kind of use the mechanism of the market to make government itself more efficient. So like government was too bloated and like you can use like the sector to do those types of things. And then I think that the other piece was that you grow the economy. So like through economic growth, and you can kind of use that in and of itself, both the growth itself, but then the tools of economic growth can then help solve kind of traditional problems of poverty. So those are kind of the, the three core ways that they think about this, which I think is actually different than how 
Ronald Reagan or Milton Friedman would go about it. You at one point put in the word doing well by doing good. And I think you said doing well and you take that part out and it's doing good is doing well, in other words, for yourself, but it's not doing good per se. Yeah. I mean, I think the other side of the guy I always say is like, what's often forgotten is the Democrats had long believed in the idea of economic growth as a sort of critical component of what, since the New Deal, was an understanding of what the purpose and function of government is, but often sort of separated those out. I think of this as like doing doing well and doing good, and that you had like compensatory social welfare programs where government stepped in for like the kind of places that the market wasn't working. And that's a kind of classic Keynesian model. This is different. And this is the idea that you don't have those compensatory programs and like private sector can kind of do those things at the same time. And you can like, there can be that kind of fusion. And that's really critical to kind of the approach and the thinking about it. It works in a lot of different mechanisms. I mean, I look at it in the book on these programs, like the new markets program of bringing corporations to kind of invest in distressed rural and urban communities. But the other one I think is it's actually really critical to the Clinton administration's view of globalization. And the purpose of globalization is that like you can... By spreading market growth, that will help sort of create more democracy and more freedom, both in the United States and throughout, especially the global South. And this, of course, is something that, you know, is hardly different from what, let's say, Bush and the new century and the neocons promote when they say they're going to promote democracy in the Middle East. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think some of those things, you see the carryover there, too, for sure. But I want to go back because I think in some ways it's so simple. It's so easy to gloss over like the origins of this. And you do a great job in the book in defining this. And that's talking about the DLC or the Democratic Leadership Council. And that's the main organization through which the new Democrats put forward their politics. It's a whole new sort of ethos. And they were very conscious about breaking with what the Democrats represented in the past. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about the development of the DLC, its history, its leaders. And of course, I love what Jesse Jackson called it, not the Democratic Leadership Council, but the Democratic Leisure Class. (laughs) The Democrats Leisure Class, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know, Jesse Jackson had, it's a fascinating, I mean, I think one thing is like, was like the most inspiring speaker, but and also had some really great singers. The piece of the origins of the DLC, it's a broader kind of shift that was going on with the Democratic Party that really, I think, starts in the 1970s with the rise of the Watergate babies of this new kind of generation of Democrats were coming in. And their idea was really like, in some ways, their opposition was less to the Republicans and more to traditional Democratic Party. And they later get known as the Atari Democrats for their large scale promotion of tech, finance and trade. And that the salvation for the Democrats was an economic growth. There was also a belief in kind of moving away from what they called special interest groups. It felt the Democratic Party become too beholden to special interests, which has to do with a lot of labor. kind of marginalized groups, but, also, <laughs> but especially the labor movement. And this idea that like that was kind of one of the things that was dragging both the Democratic Party down, but also the American economy. The American economy was too beholden to union oriented industries. So there's a wing of the people who become part of the DLC through Congress and working through Congress and promoting these kinds of ideas. And then they, in the aftermath of Walter Mondale's blowout defeat in the 84 election, they actually come together before even when he's nominated for this idea that the party needs to change. And the other side of the people who become part of the DLC are Southern moderate governors who really believe that the party needs to kind of move towards the kind of, that they think of as a center and especially going after a kind of moderate suburban voters in the South. And they're not entirely from the South. They're also from the West and some from the Midwest. And the early founders of the DLC, so they announced their formation in 1985. 
it's all white men. So the other thing they're called like the good old Southern boys. And they actually, their first head is Dick Gephardt because he's from Missouri and that like looks better, (laughs) but they're still all white men. And this is sort of seen as a threat. I think one thing that's interesting about the DLC that's often like not totally for people who don't, who sort of know the name, but don't actually understand as an organization, it was all elected officials. So it's, it's a small organization of elected officials in the Democratic Party. And they really do want to kind of shift over. I mean, one of their big slogans is this idea of like, we need to expand opportunity, not government. And I think opportunity is a really, really critical word because it's sort of saying not fairness, which is how the Democrats would traditionally think about this thing, but is a much more kind of both meritocratic and capitalistic way of thinking about what success looks like. And this idea of like government is largely through free markets and are big believers in free trade. And their founding head is Al Fromm. And a lot of the members, I should say, are people whose names are like quite familiar to us now, like Al Gore, Bill Clinton, and Joe, B- Joe Biden actually was an early member of the DLC as well. What Robert really, Reich as well. Robert Reich, <laughs> yeah, and he's really important actually in some of the intellectual infrastructure of some of these ideas, and especially this kind of idea of celebrating globalization and trade as the kind of future of the American economy through tech. And that actually plays a really critical role in some of those ideas. The DLC, as mentioned, like they did draw a lot of opposition, especially from Jesse Jackson, who saw it as a real kind of real threat. And I think one thing that I working on the book sort of came to understand in various different ways is that there's often like people often look at the 80s as this period of like failure for the Democrats because they lost two elections back to back or actually three elections back to back. Like it was actually a really interesting crossroads where the party could have gone in a lot of different directions. And you have in these various different presidential elections, like three different pathways with one represented by Jesse Jackson, I mean, who did really well in both of the primaries and did stand for like another path the Democrats would take. And that was sort of seen as a real threat to people from the DLC who were trying to move the party in a particular direction. And I think what really actually like there's this fusion that becomes like critical to the DLC success and to Bill Clinton's success, which is when Bill Clinton becomes their head. They always have like a sort of political head in 1990. And so it gives Bill Clinton a platform, a national platform in a different kind of way. But also he becomes a really, really effective translator and promoter of their ideas um, and all these ideas of kind of moving toward this more market-based approach, but can kind of put it in a more populist language that is quite appealing. So I think that kind of fusion comes to being. And I think what's really important is that their real idea was to shift. It wasn't just a political strategy. I mean, there's a strategic component of this, but they really wanted to change the kind of ideological nature of the Democratic Party. And Bill Clinton becomes a really critical vessel for doing that. So that's sort of their rise to power. And they hold court in the Democratic Party for this like brief period. So they have a very powerful period in the party. And then kind of, in some ways, that passes, which we can talk about later. Yeah, and it's really interesting because it's hard to imagine anyone other than Bill Clinton, perhaps Obama, but I doubt it, uh, being able to do things like strong arm the traditional constituencies of the Democratic Party to get NAFTA passed, for example, or any of the other initiatives, because really it was a direct attack on them. And yet he was able, and this is what makes him pretty extraordinary, I think, as a politician, is that he's able to popularize concepts And use words that are just, you know, make it the opposite of what it really is and to sell the ideas. He's a great salesman. Yeah, I think that part is really important um, in all of those types of things. So the the reason remaking and repackaging. And when I talk to members of the DLC, like that's something that they talk to that they would bring him. Or if you talk to members of the Clinton administration, he really did reframe things and under had a, a neat understanding of that and also could speak to kind of multiple audiences. And so 
I think in some ways, I mean, there's an interesting question. And like, I, in the book, look at this, there's this famous memo that the DLC put out called the politics of evasion about what the democratic party's political strategy should be going forward. And one is that we go after moderate suburbanites, not after who they call non-voters, which is basically marginalized groups. But another idea is that you really capture the presidency, which I can say, I think has had really detrimental effects on the democratic party's long-term strategy. But I think the other side of that is like, one of the issues for the Democrats has been the sort of uniqueness of Bill Clinton and that he was able to kind of, so so trying to model things after that has had other kinds of effects, but he was really effective at selling a lot of these ideas. No question about it. Well, Lily Geismer, I want to let the listeners know that the book is Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality. It just came out this year at the end of March by Public Affairs Press, and it's a really good read. We don't have time to go through all of the arguments and all of the, let's call it, real-world applications and what they did, but some of these initiatives or new directions, which we might say just really involve privatization of existing ways of dealing with social issues. So it's, I want to look at the way that it, you know, they started with healthcare, but they also did housing, schools, jobs, welfare, and empowerment. So let's pick a few of them to go through, I think, probably healthcare and housing to begin with. Sure. So in the book, I actually don't look at healthcare all that closely, but it is a kind of really important arena. And I think, I mean, one thing that comes up is like the Clinton healthcare plan is very market oriented. I actually will say that the Obama one is even more so, but like, um, so I think um, I, which I was like interested in, it was also like to go back to that question of kind of what happens, it's really complicated. And so this, those are the kinds of ways, because when you're kind of using the market to work in various different ways, it has these kind of complex dimensions to it, but it was a market approach. I mean, that you can have this question of choice and selection that very much fits in line with the ideal as opposed to kind of doing a, on the table was a, What's the single payer option and, and, and some sort of universal health care? I just want to come in on one thing there, just because Clinton largely got elected, at least it seemed to me, because he, he promoted health care reform and so many people were uninsured and it was getting so expensive and people were desperate to have some kind of national health, universal health care. And right from the start, he put Hillary in charge and he said, or she said, we're not going to do it in the single payer way. That was demonized. And it was later translated into, let's do this the American way. Somebody's got to make something out of it, you know, and this seemed to be the okay way of going and, and the approach to everything. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely right. I mean, I do think that point of, especially with healthcare, like it was, a, I mean, it was like at a crisis point, and especially I think how expensive, for many people, how expensive. And then it just only, it only like metastasized since the 1990s. So that's like some of the question too, of sort of thinking about that as, this moment of flawed or failure or loss possibility. The housing one is really, and to me, in many ways, this is the most, I would say, tragic. I get very animated when I talk about housing, but I think especially looking at like what's happened last and being in California, like with the mass housing crisis. So, so when Clinton came into office, I think this actually part of the Clinton era is less known than other pieces. So he like had this idea of like, we're going to end public housing as we know it. So it's more famous that we'll end welfare as we know it. But it was this moment, there was a sense of crisis because of the sort of traditional big public housing projects, um, especially in like Chicago, like the Robert Taylor Homes or Cabrini Green, were seen as these kind of cauldrons of extreme poverty. They did have extreme poverty, um, but also violence and drug use and crime and sort of this blight on both cities, but also on the United States. And I do think it's really important with this because how, the idea of public housing is a, a New Deal program. And it's, to me, a symbol of like one of the kind of core ideals of the New Deal and the core legacies of the New Deal of public housing. And like there are many ways the public housing program was like deeply flawed and at the time and subsequently. 
But the way that the solution that came in was this program called Hope Six, which was an idea of kind of bringing in mixed income, mixed use housing. And so you take away these big public housing programs like Cabrini Green, which house thousands of people, and instead put in lower density kind of townhouse style developments. And you give the people who live there either the choices of moving back in, which is really complicated, and that, or also a voucher on the private housing market. And what happens to this is it's actually really difficult for people to move back in. There's really stringent requirements that have to do with if you've been convicted of a crime or a relative has you, you're ineligible. Another one is like, if you don't have a job, you can't get a thing. And then also just the fact that there's like, it was a real dearth of a lack of affordable housing. So it leads to kind of, I think actually in many ways, compounding the housing crisis in many places because you have less public housing. And I've been thinking about this a lot. I mean, the fact that like the United States tore down and also has not built public housing since really the 1970s is a a major contributor to the larger housing crisis. So that's one key piece. The other, And I just, you know, just want to say too, that listeners should also read Matthew uh, Desmond's Evicted because that's like, wow, a case study later on. Exactly. Oh, it's amazing. It's an incredible book. If you haven't read that, I like, I should think everyone should read that book. But the other kind of key piece of the Clinton housing plan um, was the national homeownership strategy, which was this idea that not none of people were buying homes. So to massively loosen sort of various different mortgage lending and mortgage requirements, and especially going after people of color, they did actually have some efforts to kind of help public housing residents purchase homes. And I don't think there's, if you like go on conspiracy websites, you can say that that's like what contributed, you know, like was the cause of the housing crisis or the foreclosure crisis. I think that's a little bit overblown, but I do think it was a factor in the larger foreclosure crisis, which happens a decade later. So let's go quickly because we only have about, I guess, 15 or 20 minutes at most left. And I want to see if we can go through just quickly what they did in schools and charter schools. And then, of course, welfare reform, because those are two very important pieces that take the Democratic Party in an entirely new direction. Yeah. So with charter schools, and this is another thing I was sort of surprised to learn, and we often think of charters as a Republican idea, but actually the DLC was one of the first promoters of charter schools and sort of learning about the idea in the late 80s and early 1990s. And then Clinton kind of promotes it. And really sort of under his administration, there's, there is an expansion of charters. The big expansion of charters actually happens in the 2000s, but I think the groundwork gets laid largely through the Clinton administration's connections to the tech industry, who were also sort of really strong promoters of charters. And in California, advocate for lifting the charter cap, but then sort of set up programs to start what are known as charter management organizations, which is the idea of kind of spreading to scale the charter idea. Charters are in many ways a kind of classic new Democrat approach because it's an idea of it's, this goes to like the kind of thinking about what's different about the kind of traditional neoliberal and what I call here like the democratic version of neoliberalism, <laughs> which is that Milton Friedman actually was one of the earliest advocates of, of vouchers and like where you have a fully privatized system. The Democrats never went on board with that, but their idea was kind of this notion of kind of it's still within the public system. So charter schools still operate within like public education, but the notion of it was that it would give people more choice and also it would create competition with the public education. So this is kind of imparting various different kind of like market-oriented techniques onto public education, which is another education is like another kind of critical core ideal and traditional priority of Democrats and liberals. And so it's really reshaping how that 
comes to be thinking and also imposing a lot of things like different mechanisms of accountability and standards and all these types of things that kind of do come to really reshape public education. So it's like vouchers for housing, but charters for schools. Yeah, that's this really strange thing that like I because I think there is this idea that like education should still be within the public in a way that like housing seems to be like whatever. So right. <laughs> thing, I actually like, spent a lot of time thinking about that. Like why are vouchers okay in that instance and not in others? And like, I think it is, it has to do with the way that sort of education is thought about. Yeah, I think that's really important. So let's go through welfare reform because it was such a key part of what the new Democrats, the DLC and Clinton were doing. Sure. So Healthcare was a critical part of the Clinton, the 1992 campaign, but the other one was about this idea of running on ending welfare as we know it. And Bill Clinton was a strong advocate of welfare reform going back to the 1980s in Arkansas. And then kind of he was the head of the National Governors Association and then at the DLC and was really part of his, his kind of vision. And he really believed in kind of programs that would do welfare to work so that you would move people off welfare and into work programs. These were being experimented with a lot. Um, I mean, since the sort of 60s, Reagan had implemented a welfare program in California. Actually, Mike Dukakis in Massachusetts had a workfare program too. And so this was part of the Clinton idea. And the original plan was to kind of have this paired with certain forms of social services. And then it really, so Clinton wins and runs and has his program. It's the thing that does, it really pisses off the Republicans because, and especially like someone like Newt Gingrich, who's like, like you stole our best thing. Um, this is like, and so once... Gingrich wins, becomes speaker, and there's the contract with America and, and Gingrich revolution. They really go after Clinton on welfare and sort of Congress passes this series of very, very draconian welfare reform laws. And there are two that Clinton vetoes. And finally, in the summer of 1996, as he's facing re-election, Clinton passes the welfare reform, which is the, um, what is it? Aid to families with Yeah, no, it's the end of Aid to Family and Children. It's the Personal Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act. And I think it's those are the, the words. The responsibility, sorry, it's, it's P-W-O-R-A, Responsibility Act. And the pieces that that is what end AFDC, this like what is like another kind of critical New Deal program, which in itself was like deeply flawed of cash assistance and replaces it with the program, which is time-limited assistance and then with a, a work requirement. And I think there's many different things to say about welfare reform. And one is this goes back. It's a very market oriented thinking. I mean, it's, there's a number of different ways it works. This kind of aligns with this kind of thinking about the market. One, I mean, you're turning people into workers. The other side of it is that there's a motion that that will like increase economic growth because you're like sort of bringing in more, more laborers. The other side of it that I think is really important is that there's, I mean, it was a really, really stringent law and there's all these things of like people in the Clinton administration who were opposed to it themselves, that, you know, opposed, there's a lot of division. But what's forgotten in that or that, you know, Clinton was forced to sign it is that he was a strong advocate of welfare reform and of of welfare to work programs and also sort of promoted it as we were talking about this kind of valorization of poor women of color with this idea that like, it's not just sort of important economically for people to work, but also psychologically. And he would tell the story of this woman named Lily Mae Harden, who he'd met in the 80s who talked about how it was really important for her to have a job because like she could tell her children, like her children were proud of her and he brought her to the signing ceremony. So that is sort of wrapped up in the kind of larger welfare reform program. I think there's another really critical piece of it. And I'm sorry, I feel like I'm, I'm sorry if I'm ranting on this topic, um, but it goes to another kind of thing that the book looks at, which is the question of kind of the opposition to it. 
Um, That's exactly where I was going to go next. Yeah. And I I also wanted to say that something I, your your book made me think about, and the book is left behind and you really ought to run out and grab it. But that was this notion that every kind of benefit in the United States was tied to work and not citizenship. So if you didn't work, you didn't get social security. And now, of course, you know, we've seen even the absurd length that they're trying to tie Medicaid to work. And if you're disabled, somehow you're supposed to be able to work. So go on. Let's take no, it. I think that's actually a really important point. And so this goes to like this larger issue. I mean, that's one thing like sort of when we think about anything about universal programs, like in the United States, there's never actually been a universal, like there's never been a universal welfare. It's always been work-based. And that goes back to the ways in which it, during the New Deal, there's a limited dimension to it. There are many ways that like the New Deal programs were super transformative and really important, but that's really critical. And I think there's been a lot of work that's been done by scholars comparatively thinking about that question, like unlike in the UK, which there are lots of problems with their social welfare program, but it is universal and that like it's tied to citizenship, not to um, yeah. not to work. And you see the consequences of that. But the issue that I think you're bringing that is really important is that that only that only magnifies like that's that's continued to be as opposed to sort of thinking about what are the limitations of that. It's continued to increase. But yeah, so I, I think about that question all the time and it's but I'm glad it came out. The other thing is this question of like opposition. And so there, there was actually a lot. And so one thing that I was really struck by working on this project and I was really interested in was like, where was the opposition? So having looked at other parts in my research and other work I've done, like there's lots of places where you can see tension and opposition from especially frictions within the Democratic Party. In the 80s, there was more of that. And by the 90s, it was like had seemed to drop out. But there was just not the sustained opposition to a lot of these programs. Welfare there was so that you have feminist groups, welfare, right? Brooks, civil rights groups were all opposed to it. I mean, you have Jesse Jackson and the head of now were like outside the White House protesting. But then a week later is the 1986 Democratic National Convention, and they all go and support Clinton. And that's this really interesting moment that there's not in the 1990s, like there's opposition to particular issues, but not a kind of sustained opposition on the left for a variety of different reasons that I think actually is becomes a kind of contributing factor, but also only makes these tensions become kind of deepen and contributes to these larger tensions that we've seen kind of play out with the, Dem- the Democratic coalition going forward. So that's another thing that I think is really important about welfare. It's really interesting. We don't have a lot of time to go into it, but even in the case of Jesse Jackson, who later tours with Clinton after being absolutely opposed. And I think, you know, as I'm listening to you and as I was reading the book thinking, well, there was opposition, but people went along because they thought it was the way to win. Yeah. Well, I think that that's really what what happens and that like there's this idea. So it happens on the, the other side of NAFTA or the teachers unions, like not pushing harder was that they actually, they saw the Republicans as worse. Um, and especially in this period, like post 1994, where you have Gingrich, the Gingrich revolution, there's this idea that like, this is the only way to win. And if we go, we'll go along with this because we'll get other things. And, the, and then in the book looks at where I do think ar- around the WTO is actually where you have this sort of convergence of various different groups come together, and sort of speak out and oppose. The, yeah, and you're um, talking about the Seattle protests, which everybody thought was the beginning of this new great movement, Teamsters and Turtles and everything else. And then, of course, 9-11 happened and just derails the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so, I mean, I think there's the groundwork of that leads to kind of some of the movements that that do emerge like a decade later with Occupy and then kind of sustained through the Sanders campaigns and into today. 
But that was the other thing that there's just not this, that that was another moment where it was sort of seemed like something was going to sort of take hold and then it kind of dissipates out. And Clinton sort of, there's also an appropriation of some of those messages about globalization and its power that kind of, I think, takes the um, the wind out of the sails too. But I think I think 9-11 was the, the biggest selling factor. Yeah, I wanted to go though, because I mean, it's really important to talk about this in terms of how successful the DLC was in taking over the Democratic Party and still is today, even though there's this gigantic other movement away from it. Obama certainly is the inheritor and new propagator of this. But, you know, today we see, you know, like Hakeem Jeffries and Josh Gottheimer, who are, I guess, blue dog, what we call corporate Dems, who are seen, they see themselves as representing this wing of the party and are poised, in fact, to become more of the leadership of the party once Nancy Pelosi steps down. So I'm just wondering how you see that, because we have on the other side this tension that, you know, you've had in 2016 and 20 Bernie Sanders in that gigantic constituency, as well as AOC and all these others elected. And yet, you know, when these ideas are being rejected by the base of the party and the population, here you've got these leaders coming up who are touting it once again. Yeah, I think it's re- that's a really important component too. And so I do think that that point of like, in contrast to the 1990s, where you have a, a much more assertive and powerful left wing pushing against the, pushing against policies. Also, I mean, another thing is that like, I think another critical factor of the 90s was the economy was doing so well, you know, and it wasn't, as I argue in the book, it was leaving loads of people behind. I mean, they made this point of like, they were like, we have to help people who are left behind, but it was also like creating vast forms of inequality. And there are many people who are not, you know, not experiencing economic growth in the 1990s. But I think that was another difference that there's much more of a like, I mean, I think people in the middle class feel much, much more either vulnerable or insecure than they did kind of in the moment of the 90s. And that's leading plays a factor too. But I think you've had the differences of kind of what Biden has promoted and certain parts of the campaign do stand for a different version of that kind of mainstream Democratic Party. And his own politics are so complicated within all of this. But I think there's this point of the Democrats where they are, and this goes to their sort of fundamental tensions, is that that corporate wing and that centrist wing, there's this idea that's the only, that still is, it's still sold that that's the only way we can win. And I think that that is what has been so detrimental because that actually affects policy in various different ways. It's not just about kind of political strategy. It's also about the kind of policies and agenda that the party itself promotes. I, we don't have a lot of time left, but I was I said it in the intro that these leaders like Gottheimer and others are already saying this is the way we have to go and blaming the left for the losses to come. Right. And that but Biden and I think we don't have time to do it, but just quickly, how would you characterize, I guess, the journey of Reich and Biden? Because Biden is sort of standing I guess, sort of at the crossroads of these two different ways, but tilting more toward going back to what government can do. Well, I think there's an interesting thing. I I mean, the other thing about Biden that's fascinating is that many of the people who he has as his top advisors actually emerged from the DLC. And so people like Bruce Reed and Gene Sperling, who are very much part of them, and the Clinton administration. But I think they have a a second. So I mean, like Biden is not selling microenterprise and like charter schools are not at the heart of his agenda in the same kind of way that they were for Clinton. I actually think also with Obama, you know, had sold sort of tech entrepreneurship or the various different things that like were part of that kind of vision that are not there. But I think, I mean, I think with Biden's own journey, I think the difference is that he's not trying to sort of change the ideology of the Democratic Party in the same way that Bill Clinton was. Like he sort of is responding to where he sees the party going. So he's like much more 
that part of him where he says like, I'm sort of standing for the party on, except for on one major issue, which is crime. And so I think that like that to me is the thing that he has like sort of stood steadfast on. And I think that like, if you did a close read of the state of the union, it's very clear, like where his sort of positioning on that is. So I think he has a bit trajectory. I think Reich has gone in a different direction. I mean, has, has actually had an evolution in various different ways. You know, they think there's still those parts of them there, but it's, I mean, even at the time in the nineties was what was like, sort of was in opposition to much of what the Clinton administration has done. And I think now doesn't sort of speak out directly against the policies, but has in the last several decades moved in a, in a more progressive nature. At least what I've, at least what I can see and I've been following from Twitter. So um, those are the, <laughs> those no are, question that, about my read on it. <laughs> well, Lily Geismer, I can't thank you enough. And I, I have to say that we could spend another hour discussing, you know, sort of the race implications of this, as well as the other sort of political evolution that has to do with the economy and the democratic party and whether you kind of see it as changing or going back, going forward. We don't have time to pick up on all those questions, but I do you know, highly recommend for listeners to read this because it's a real close study of what happened to the Democratic Party and how they came to adopt the policies that are still with us, even if they aren't all with us. And I think the other sort of thing that you go through with, uh, come out with is what a failure all these policies were. And you leave in your epilogue, I just love it. You know, you're just categorical about what should be done rather than what was done. And that's kind of a cliffhanger. And I hate to leave it that way. But I want to thank you. The book is left behind. The Democrats failed attempt to solve inequality. Lily Geismer is the author, and she's an associate professor at Claremont right here in Southern California. Lily, thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank you so much. I I really enjoyed it. Um, Lots of fun. And come back because we'll unpack some of the other ideas. I would love to. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.